you for taking time to talk to us. Thank you. And uh, uh, could you please speak a bit about your current field of uh, work and uh, uh, what are the main questions, research questions you are focusing on? Yes, my current uh, uh, position, uh, I'm managing a new trust fund, uh, which is a research trust fund on forced displacement, financed by the UK government and uh, in collaboration with the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And in this uh, research program, we try to focus on uh, uh, research that is both operational uh, and operationally relevant and uh, um, high-level research in terms of content. Uh, as you may well know, uh, uh, and part of the reason why we have this conference uh, today and tomorrow is because uh, there is a big gap in the research uh, that we do on forced displacement in general, and more particularly in the area of social protection. This trust fund tries to address this particular vacuum uh, and uh, finances uh, research on forced displacement in four priority sectors, including social protection, which is one of them. So my focus at the moment is both in terms of uh, managing the research fund, but also and therefore allocating resources to people within the uh, World Bank, the UNHCR, and outside uh, research institutions. But also we have uh, our own research agenda that derives from uh, two particular works uh, that we have been doing. Uh, one uh, is a, a work that we started a few years ago on the welfare of refugees where the World Bank, so we tend to look at poverty, and we focus in particular on the welfare of refugees, uh, uh, Syrian refugees in Jordan and Lebanon. Uh, and uh, another aspect of research that is more recent and we're looking at now is uh, how people take decisions where when they are under conflict. Uh, why most of people under conflict are actually not leaving the conflict areas but are staying and who are the people who are actually leaving and becoming internally displaced persons or refugees in neighboring countries. So this is a critical question that we're trying to address among many other questions that we're looking at in, in uh, this research program. What, uh, what are you, the challenges and the opportunities that uh, uh, you can see of conducting research in uh, cash transfers or other uh, social policies, uh, social, pro social policy programs uh, in fragile and humanitarian context? Yeah, I think uh, uh, we have uh, quite a lot of knowledge on social protection systems in the context of uh, development work. Uh, we have uh, 50, 60 years of experience uh, in developing countries, but also a very long-term experience in uh, developed countries. Let's not forget that the first social protection systems uh, were designed in the 19th century and many of the new social protection systems that came about uh, in the 20th century only came about after World War II. So the social protection systems as a whole, they are relatively new. The development work on developing countries in the social protection systems is, is uh, even newer than that, is 30, 40 years old, 50 years old at the most. And now we're looking at a particular population, uh, the forced displacement population, 
uh, where uh, the social protection systems have been constructing and have developed experience over a 20, 30 years, 40 years period, but in the humanitarian context. So uh, the type of work, the type of social protection programs that were designed uh, around forced displaced populations are quite different from the type of programs that were designed about regular populations. And what are these differences? What is the main uh, uh, difference between these two types of population? You have to think that uh, in the development world and when we talk about developing countries and we're looking at an entire population as a whole, social protection wants to uh, address the needs of a particular section of the population which is the most uh, vulnerable, uh, the most poor, uh, the most in needs of assistance for different uh, either categorical or income-based criteria. When we look at a population of refugees, the rationale is very different. Population of refugees is a population needs of protection, first of all. And therefore, it's not so much in the first phase about targeting, about selecting people to focus on their income level, their basic needs, but it's most about protecting people because, because they have a status that requires that type of protection. So that's a very important difference to start with. And therefore, when we start discussing issues uh, of social protection like targeting, uh, one thing is targeting poor people out of an entire population. A different thing is targeting refugees uh, who should be targeting because of protection reason, and therefore they, their status entitled, entitles them to uh, protection and cash assistance. Uh, as opposed to be uh, entitled because uh, you have basic needs or because you are a poor person. So when now we're starting to put together the development agenda with uh, the humanitarian agenda, it's clear that these two different concepts start to overlap. And so we start to ask the question, for example, uh, should we target refugees based on income and consumption, therefore based on poverty criteria? based on basic needs criteria? These are new questions. We haven't really addressed them properly yet, and we're studying, and this conference is one of the opportunities to do that. So as you said, this is a, a very uh, relatively recent area of research, and there is not much research around that. So why do you think it's a neglected research area? Yeah, th I think there are two factors uh, uh, which are essentially historical. Uh, the first factor is that um, humanitarian organizations by nature, uh, they work on a short-term basis and they have to react to short-term needs very quickly. So uh, the time to uh, sit down, do proper research, uh, hire researchers, uh, staff the organization with a researcher type of people is very small. As a result of that, uh, over a very long period of time of humanitarian assistance, these organizations, because of the needs they have, they're mostly uh, staffed uh, not necessarily by researchers, but by field workers, by uh, legal people, uh, lawyers, by people experts on protection issues, uh, uh, or maybe experts in some social protection programs. Um, at the same time, these organizations uh, have collected a lot of information and they have a need to collect more information and good information because they need to run programs which are based on this information. So what they generally tend to do, they 
tend to compensate this lack by hiring outside persons or institutions and uh, subcontracting pieces of uh, uh, research. Now, that has occurred in a very scattered manner, not organized, not systematic, not with a gradual approach whereby in the long term you build your own internal capacity uh, in your organization. And therefore, there is very little left for other people like economists sitting in research institutions uh, to deal with. Uh, we don't have the microeconomic data. What does it mean? We don't have uh, the information, the unit information on individuals and households that we need to do the economic work, the microeconomic work that is necessary to pull out the hardcore research. So uh, when uh, we started to work development world started to work together with the humanitarian world, uh, this became very evident because in the development world it's the other way around uh, because it's long-term, it's protracted situation, we're looking at long-term development goals, then the component of research uh, and the economics of research has been much more uh, developed uh, over the past 30, 40, 50 years. And so by bringing into uh, the humanitarian world the development experience, we can slowly but surely try to build the same type of uh, microeconomic data that are needed to do hardcore research. And this is exactly what we're working on now with the UNHCR, uh, for example, uh, in uh, Geneva at the field level, uh, we as the World Bank, but more in general as the development world is starting to work together with the humanitarian world. Um, what is your experience in collecting data? Is there a trade-off between quality and urgency? And if so, how can we address that? Yes, there is a clear trade-off uh, between the two. As I mentioned before, uh, the less time you have to intervene, the less time you can dedicate to research and data collection. So there is a trade-off. Uh, but it's also true that if uh, we unite resources between organizations that have the luxury to do research and organizations that do not have that luxury, then this partnership can really deliver in terms of better quality of data. Uh, again, I'd like to mention this experiment uh, and this experience that we have, uh, uh, the World Bank Group has together with the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees where uh, we try to provide our technical expertise on microdata to improve on the microdata collection that the UNHCR does at the field level and then see how this information generated by uh, the UNHCR can then be used back into research at the World Bank Group at the UNHCR or for other organizations. Remember that the UNHCR uh, has the mandate to protect refugees so microdata, data on individual people, are sensitive information. So we have to be very uh, savvy in the way we use this data and the way we uh, uh, manage this data. But at the same time, it's important that these data are provided to uh, uh, scholars, researchers, people that can use this data to provide back to these organizations more information on how to uh, restructure the programs, improve the programs, and eventually uh, provide a better livelihood uh, uh, to our final clients, who are the refugees, the IDPs, and the health communities that live with them. Could you please talk a bit 
uh, about the main pros and cons for uh, administering uh, social protection programs in humanitarian contexts? I think that the main advantage uh, is that uh, uh, there are synergies and economy of scale uh, that we can use. Think about a country that uh, does not have a social protection system in place. This is the case of many African countries. When uh, uh, the humanitarian world comes in and builds a system of social protection for refugees or internally displaced persons, maybe the first social protection system that the country has. So there is an opportunity there to uh, uh, use this humanitarian experience and effort to build the human social protection system in the country uh, of uh, host. So that's a very, it's a unique opportunity uh, to do that. Vice versa, uh, a, a country that has a good social protection system, we're thinking, for example, of countries like in the Middle East uh, or countries with, with more advanced social protection systems in general, so maybe wealthier countries, middle-income countries, when you do have a crisis and you do have uh, an influx of refugees in your country, then you can uh, use that system in place to serve populations that you're not serving at the moment. And so the humanitarian assistance can channel, can be channeled through an established network system that is already in place, and that's really an economy scale. So there are significant advantages in uh, thinking of social protections in both terms of uh, uh, humanitarian and uh, development assistance. Now, of course, there are also uh, uh, several uh, difficulties, uh, not least uh, what I uh, mentioned before, which relates to um, you know, what is the scope exactly of the programs we're designing? What are we trying to achieve? If we're trying to achieve protection because a person is a refugee, and by the international convention, this person needs protection, then it's not necessarily about income or wealth or about uh, uh, basic needs. It's about of, uh, protection that can have many different dimensions, but not necessarily monetary dimension. So is it a cash transfer, uh, like in the classic uh, social protection system suitable for a different type of population? That's a question to address. And so we're not, it's not automatic that every system in place can be applied to different types of population. We need to think, and this is a part of the process of what we do also in this conference, to think through how we can uh, adjust what we have uh, to the new type of population and vice versa, build what we don't have using the humanitarian experience. Could you tell us more about how this program design can affect uh, the lives of, and the well-being of the population they address? How do you see this impact of, of different uh, program designs, components on, on uh, children, households, uh, pop populations, but well-being in general? Yeah, the design of a system is critical in its success. We know that. Uh, we know that cash per se is generally uh, a useful and successful program, a cash program. But we also know that uh, things can go really badly really quickly. Um, and uh, to give you an example, I think it's used to think about uh, what are generally called in the humanitarian world the graduation programs. Uh, 
of what in the development world are called uh, the uh, program uh, to move from uh, social protection or social assistance to uh, jobs and labor markets, right? So uh, if uh, uh, we're talking about the humanitarian context and uh, uh, the, this cash assistance and the level of cash assistance has to be very well fine-tuned. Imagine if this cash assistance is twice as high as the minimum salary in the country where the refugees are hosted. What would happen? What would refugees do? Well, naturally, would not join the labor market. Vice versa, if this uh, threshold, this level of cash assistance is too low, refugees uh, would not be able to uh, uh, seek work and move around and search for work opportunities because they would need to survive and find food and uh, informal occupations and maybe some uh, very poorly paid jobs just to survive. So this fine tuning of the cash is critical to cash programs. Also, uh, sometimes there are not many distinctions between, uh, say, cash programs and uh, food voucher programs. Uh, we know that many refugees uh, tend to monetize the food vouchers, and therefore the food vouchers, in a sense, become very similar to what cash assistance is. Uh, although it's more restricted, maybe, because uh, you can only uh, use food voucher, vouchers in certain uh, shops and, and uh, uh, retail areas. So uh, there are similarities between these two programs, but they are also uh, different. And really, the uh, devil is in the detail, in the way we fine-tune these programs to the local needs of this particular uh, population. Now, there are other types of assistance, purely in kind, for example, that has a different purpose. So when and how do we decide whether some assistance should be provided in cash and some other should be provided in kind? That's a very important question, and one that has to do with normative criteria, and particularly with what we think is the right judge uh, for the best allocation of resources within a household. Let me give you an example. If uh, I'm a head of household, and I'm a good head of household, and I think that I know exactly how I should distribute my resources within the household, probably the best type of program would be cash assistance, because I know that you know much better than I do as an administrator what are the needs of your family, your clan, and your household. But what if you're a different type of head of household, and you're not able to even understand the problem you have. Think about a psychological problem that the head of household may have, or a member of the, of the household that is not identified, that experts would be able to identify, but not the head of households. So providing cash to the head of households would not address that particular disability question. So there you need a different type of programs, maybe a service psychological support service, or maybe you need a disability type of specialist to look into this question. So that's a service, it's not cash. So the decision is essentially a decision that the administration has to make based on what we think uh, is uh, the best way uh, to address that particular concern. So in, in your view, what are the main knowledge gaps to better leverage social protection in fragile contexts, humanitarian contexts? 
Yeah, I think there are a number of areas that uh, really need to be looked into. Uh, the first one that I mentioned before very briefly is this question of uh, transition from uh, a social protection system to a labor market system. So how do we uh, start from the very beginning of uh, the administration of the social protection system, think in terms of people gaining their livelihood in the labor market system? So the question of uh, a threshold of the cash, the question of uh, continued education that these people must receive, the question of skills improvements, all these are issues that are important and needs to be combined to make sure that the social protection system is a springboard for the labor market and not an impediment to join the labor market. So that's an important, very important issue we need to focus on, uh, on research also. Uh, another issue which is important, it's very much debated, but we don't really have uh, a complete answer, is, is whether the systems should be uh, nationally run, uh, like for the host population, or should be parallel system uh, specifically designed for the refugees or the IDPs. I think uh, there is a tendency now to think that uh, we should move towards the model of uh, a national social protection system, but there are a lot of issues with that, and uh, I don't think that uh, uh, we are completely clear whether that's a solution in all cases. Uh, there is also the question of uh, urban versus uh, uh, rural, forced displaced people. Uh, should the social protection system uh, work in the same manner for these two types of population? Assisting a farmer, is it the same thing that assisting uh, someone who is in urban areas and uh, does not have a plot of land? Uh, and uh, um, also uh, another distinction that uh, uh, we usually have, and it's important, is between camp and non-camp. So uh, is it better to provide social protection systems in a camp environment or outside a camp? And this belongs to the wider discussion uh, that we have uh, of whether refugees or IDPs should be kept in camps or not. And I think uh, we're now moving towards a model where we think that people in camp, that um, uh, people in camp is not really a long-term solution. How do you think we can improve evidence on social protection in this context in particular? I think that uh, the main uh, concern on the part of uh, analysts uh, remains the lack of data and in particular the, the lack of what we call microdata, these individual uh, records of, of uh, people and families. Uh, there is a lack because we're not collecting enough of this data. I'll give you one example. When we measure uh, poverty worldwide, we do that by measuring consumption and expenditure or income of, uh, uh, of people in a, in a given country. Now, this information is collected via household budget surveys. These are sample surveys which are administered throughout the country uh, with the objective of measuring uh, the budget of households, income uh, and, and expenditure. Now, with that information, we can then construct a, a, a picture of the poverty level in a country. Now, imagine that most countries in the world, when they do that, do not cover refugees on IDPs. What does it mean? It means that we're actually not counting in our global poverty numbers the refugees and IDPs. We know that we have about 65.6 million people uh, today 
who are refugees and IDPs and other similar categories. So why are we not counting them among the people in need and among the poor? Well, because we don't have the data to do that at the moment. So one of the efforts, one of the uh, things we're trying to do uh, at the World Bank uh, together with the UNHCR and other organizations is to push on this collection of microdata to uh, have uh, uh, national statistical agencies working, uh, thinking that they should also cover these types of population, refugees and IDPs. And on the other side, the organizations like the World Bank and the UNHCR, when we collect data directly, uh, do that in a manner that covers host populations, but also migrant populations like refugees and IDPs. So this microdata is uh, really one of the major impediments for research. A second aspect, which uh, is often overlooked, is that because of this data scarcity of a very long period of time, there is a very small pool of researchers who do high-level research on forced displacement. So while we're improving the data, we really need to improve uh, the human capacity uh, uh, and the research and the number of researchers that are working in these fields. So in our program, for example, uh, we devised uh, a, a new PhD postdoc uh, program uh, fellowship uh, that is designed for people who want to get into the economics of forced displacement or the macroeconomics or the econometric forced displacement. And we provide fellowship uh, uh, for these people to do research on particular operations that the World Bank or the UNHCR are doing at the moment. So we're at the beginning. Um, we did a review uh, of uh, uh, article published in top journals, uh, not just in economics, but also other social sciences, uh, that do research uh, on refugees and IDPs. And the results were, were staggering. Only a few hundred of, of articles on refugees, only 18 articles on IDPs. Uh, there is not much research out there on these populations, and we need to work on both the microdata, the good data, and uh, the researchers and develop uh, both uh, strands to be able to uh, resolve that problem. How can uh, research help to bridge the humanitarian development divide, if any? Do you think that there is any, a divide between humanitarian and development? Uh, there is, there has been historically. Uh, we can think of three phases of uh, uh, this divide. The first one uh, when uh, at the very beginning uh, the UNHCR was established and uh, after World War II and it was clear that uh, the question of forcibly displaced and refugees in particular was to be assigned to a humanitarian organization for uh, protection purposes. And so they took the lead from the very beginning about assisting these kind of populations. And the development world was not really there. Uh, that's, we can think of that as phase one. Uh, phase two, uh, we have a, a period where humanitarian organizations realized that uh, uh, some of these crises are protracted. So we started to have refugees crises that last five, 10, 20 years and that eventually the problems that these refugees face are problems of development. So in the second phase, there is this idea that uh, there is first humanitarian assistance, and when the crisis becomes protracted, then development assistance comes in and takes uh, uh, the solution forward. 
we're now, I think, in a third phase where um, which we can think of a phase of maturity where the uh, humanitarian development world are working together from day one. And that's a complete shift in the way that we look at this particular problem. How, how do you define success for a particular program in a fragile context? How can we uh, prove successful outcomes for, uh, in the longer term for household, children, uh, people, communities? Yeah, we need to lower our standards a bit as compared to what we would think is a real success, say, of a labor market pro uh, program uh, in Europe or in the United States, uh, where success is defined as, for example, uh, acquiring a full-time job, uh, uh, maybe not a term job, and uh, well-paid, maybe with an average uh, salary. That's not the kind of success uh, meter that we can use uh, in the refugee and uh, uh, displacement situation. Not at least in the short term. We should in the long term, maybe in the medium term, but not in the short term. In the short term, we want to ensure certain basic uh, um, uh, safeguards. So basic needs, ensure that basic needs are met. Uh, basic uh, protection requirement, ensure that people are protected ensure that there is no malnutrition, ensure that uh, uh, they have a minimum uh, uh, to, li uh, to live on, and uh, the opportunity to gain a place in the labor market. So the opportunity to move, as I was saying before, from social protection to the labor market. So uh, that means also having work permits, having uh, um, uh, a, a legal status in the country of host, and having uh, those preconditions that allow a, a refugees to uh, compete in the labor market as a, anyone else, and therefore prove its own uh, 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 skills and uh, professional abilities and so on. Now, we're not there yet, so uh, that's why I consider that uh, to be a minimum threshold objective, which is lower than what we would expect in a developed country uh, with a functioning, fully functioning economy and uh, catering for its own citizens. But in the medium and long term, what we know from research already is that uh, within 10 years, uh, refugees can actually attain the same level of uh, income uh, than uh, non-refugees, uh, the local populations. In fact, we, can e we even know that they can bypass this threshold within uh, 10 to 15 years. So uh, our goals for refugees and IDPs in the medium and long term should be the same as the goals we normally have for any other population. And that is because refugees are not different from any other persons. Uh, they have skills, they have professional abilities, they are doctors, nurses, they are farmers, uh, and uh, the label of refugees tend to restrict and hide uh, this uh, fact. But in fact, they are no different from any other populations, and they can achieve the same results, as we know from research, in the medium and long term. What actions by external partners or international organizations, and if you 
want to mention UNICEF as well, uh, can, uh, can help or uh, hinder effective social protection outcomes in fragile, con in fragile contexts. There is uh, one important lesson uh, from uh, research uh, uh, in the development world, but also on developed country, and that's a standard across country worldwide and uh, really st strong evidence that uh, the return uh, uh, to programs on people decrease with age. So the more you invest in an early stage of a child, uh, or, and of a teenager and eventually as an adult. The earlier you invest in life, the higher are the returns uh, uh, for the country, for the uh, gross domestic product of the country, for the growth of the country. Uh, that we know, uh, I would say almost for certain, from uh, 30, 40 years of research uh, that has been done in this area. So let's think about what is different for refugees and IDPs? Well, first, uh, the share of children tend to be higher in a refugee population as compared to a non-refugee population. Secondly, the share of children who are actually in school when you are refugees is extremely low as compared to a regular population. Even in middle-income countries like Lebanon, for example, uh, only half of the children in 2015 uh, were in school of refugee children. That means that half were not in school. So we were not investing, we were investing zero in the growth of these children. And we know that for every additional year that passes, the return to that investments goes down. So if we invest immediately in a child at the age of two, three, four, five, six, then the returns will be high. If we invest uh, when this child is 15 years of age and has lost 10 years of education, then it's too late to have this child becoming a functional adult. So this is where it's really important we focus on. We need, and UNICEF has a unique role uh, in this respect, we need to make sure that the displaced people, the displaced children are in school, that parents have the opportunity to send their children to school and therefore the family is organized in a way that gives space for children to go to school. They have to be in school. And uh, as we deal with older people, but starting from day one of a crisis, we maintain the skills, the occupational abilities, the professional abilities, and uh, the baggage that these people come with. Because even if you are a doctor, imagine a heart surgeon that comes as a refugee through the border and is put in a camp and does not work for five years this heart surgeon will become a skillless person that is not employable anymore in a hospital. So you have lost an enormous investment done by the country of origin over a 40, pe 40 years period uh, just because you have not identified this person as a heart surgeon at the moment you come through uh, the border. So this has to change and we need really to start focusing uh, on children because we know that that's uh, where the highest return on investment, on every dollar spent, will come from. My last question is about uh, uh, cash transfers. What is the evidence about the role of cash transfers programs in humanitarian contexts? 
yeah, hard evidence, uh, uh, we don't have uh, that much uh, at the moment. We have uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, information that comes through reports, and this information tells us that cash transfer work. I've done research myself on the welfare of Syrian refugees. We have evaluated uh, the impact on poverty of the UNHCR cash program and the WFP uh, food voucher program. And we found that both programs were extremely effective in reducing poverty. So if I take a poverty reduction measure, I can say that by my own research that cash assistance uh, works. We also know that it works in humanitarian context, given all the uh, caveats that I've mentioned before. Uh, but it doesn't always work in all contexts, and it doesn't always uh, provide the support that is needed for this transition to the labor market, which is really what we want uh, in the long term. So again, uh, it is the fine tuning that uh, will make a big difference in the way we work. And to understand what this fine tuning is, we need uh, uh, very accurate uh, research that uh, is based on micro data. That's essential for the future of social protection and forced displacement. Thank you very much.